In this first of three podcasts, NAC dance producer Kathy Levy speaks to acclaimed choreographer Edward Locke. Kathy sat down with Edward to chat about his work, from his early years as a choreographer to his style in general and the use of ballet technique in his pieces. This is a unique opportunity to hear Edward talk about the evolution of his work. Edward, it's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. Here we are 30 plus years on from the beginning of La La La. I've had the great privilege of being able to talk to you several times, but maybe not formally for We've our We've only NAC done this several podcast. times well, over 30 years. <laughs> well, most, most of our talking has been over a cup of coffee and a cigarette, I think. <laughs> um, but this is an amazing accomplishment, 30 years. To survive, to still be alive 30 <laughs> years later. To still be know. making amazing work. To think how many times I've crossed the street and I've avoided being hit for it's 30 years. It's unbelievable. It's and of course, you had a life before that, but I'm just talking about la la la. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> celebrating your 30th anniversary or sort of the tail end of that. Did you ever think when you started La 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 in 1980 that you'd be talking about this in 2010-11? No, really not. I mean, it was, it was, it was a project. And, um, you know, the, the dance community in those days was a relatively small one. It was a very intimate one. People would know each other and would decide spontaneously to do a project. And that's what we did. And, you know, it was pretty hard to survive. So, really, you, we weren't thinking very much into, into the future. We were thinking about how to get the, you know, project we were working on to be, you know, uh, ready on time. What do you remember about that first project? I mean, I know there were projects before La La La, but what do you remember? I think the first one was Lily Marlene. Is that true? Yeah, it was it's a the only one I haven't seen. Oh, darn. Yeah, it was a 1980. Uh, I'd done a piece for the Grand Ballet, uh, a studio piece, and one of the dancers, Miriam Moutier, uh, had decided to leave Les Grands and come join me. I don't know for what reason. This is a premonition <laughs> for things to come. <laughs> the exile of ballet well, it dancers. it certainly wasn't a financial decision, I'll tell you that much. Um, and so we, around that core, built up a larger group of people. And uh, we decided to do a project. We went and got... Uh, uh, the theater in Saint-Henri, um, L'Escabelle. But before that, we worked for about six months uh, at the National Theater School, and uh, we we had a very small budget. I think we had about five thousand dollars to to do this from explorations at the time. Jean Renou was the uh, uh, officer at explorations and at the Canada Council. And so we rehearsed six six months at the National Theater School. And we had the uh, poster done by Michel Lemieux, and we had the music done by Robert Racine, who also interpreted it. It was just uh, essentially a piece for accordion. And we had the decor built, and we rented the theater for about three weeks, and then we went to the kitchen uh, in New York. So it was a month's run, three weeks in Montreal, one month in in New York. Put everything in a station wagon and, and took off and did the kitchen. Fantastic. And what did you? What do you remember about the movement of that piece and the style that and you were coming out with a language that it seems like not many people had had seen or experienced? Well, I think it was theatrical in the sense that it had um, references. Um, you know, I remember thinking uh, "Lily Marlene" was the only song that both the Germans and the uh, Allies sang as they went to fight each other. <laughs> sort of a shared song, but. Um, no, it, it had a movement base. Uh, it also had a theatrical base. Uh, there were all sorts of odd references and symbols. Uh, the male-female thing was sort of being explored at that time too. 
uh, painting on walls. Uh, just a, it was a very odd theater. It was a very evocative, dark room, and it lent itself. There was a, an, a sense of mystery, a sense of... I remember Robert Racine um, just walking down the spiral staircase from, uh, uh, you know, somewhere up, up, up near the roof and, and just... Um, uh, creating this sort of breathing sound with his, with his accordion as he was walking down the spiral staircase and everybody sort of waiting for that to happen. It just was an odd little moment and uh, I have great memories of it. It's wonderful to think about Robert Racine and Michel Lemieux, artists who you know, were launched as well at that time, who are still, of course, very active today. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, if, you know, this, the, the road has been, has been paved with amazing successes, great honors, great awards. We're going to talk about you becoming a doctor. Uh, but I want to go back even farther. You grew up born in Casablanca. Prior to my birth? <laughs> well, that I'd have to talk to your mom about, I guess. Yeah. But you born in Casablanca. I was born in Casablanca. And and how long did you stay there before you ended up in Montreal? Uh, I think it was about two and a half years. And then my, my parents uh, decided to move and I being, I didn't have that much independence in those days. Yeah, two and a half is a bit tough. I yeah. sort of <laughs> decided to, to join them. Uh, apparently we did the crossing in Queenie. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I just found that out about a month ago. Really? And uh, we landed in Halifax and the Canadian government had this policy of giving all the immigrant children uh, a red plush dog, courtesy of the Canadian government. So I remember getting a dog and 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 um, then t- going on train, a uh, coal-burning train, and going from Halifax to Montreal. So the destination was always Montreal? Yes, it was. Was that because of your father's work or your um, We were francophone. Uh-huh. We're a francophone family, so Quebec was the place where you could speak French. Right. And, and the training before Lily Marlene and La 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 was more in film, was it not? And, and design? And like well, one wonders, I, I we began, like your mom began the, a dance class at the age of four. Well, I began choreography in 1974. The mm-hmm. first piece I did was for Groupe Nouvelle Air. It was at the Outremont Theater in, in December 1974. It had uh, Paul-André Fortier as a dancer. It had Ginette Laurent as a dancer and Philippe Vita was a pas de trois. Uh, so really I began in working with choreography uh, around 1973. Prior to that, I studied for a short period of time. It all began because I was working um, as a student, not working as a student, but studying at what was then Sir George Williams University. I remember that. And um, Norma Springford was the head of the theater department. And my first contact with the theater was a D.B. Clark in that university complex, the, the, the hall building. And uh, prior to that, I was studying literature, and I took one elective in theater, and that elective had for half of the time a movement class, which was taught by uh, Groupe de la Place Royale, in okay. exchange for which they had the theater uh, and they could do the shows. Peter Bonham and Peter Jean-Pierre Peter Bonham, that's right. right. And the teacher was... Um, from the company, um, Nora Hemingway, and she had this passion for teaching not just the technique, not just the steps, but what she felt about uh, what she was doing. Uh, that odd sense of communication when you can impart something beyond the actual understanding of the art form, something more along the lines of why the person does it, the kind of passion it generates in them. So I was one of many students that was sort of really enthralled with it. And I just kept being more and more enthralled and kind of drawn away more and more from university. 
And and were your pieces produced at D.B. Clark? Did you have no, a chance no, no, to show them? No, 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 no. I was anything? just a student in those days. And then after I left the university uh, to get more involved in uh, the, the dance, I started wondering well, why were the techniques there? What did they bring? What was the point of view of each technique? What was it trying to bring out? So I studied as many of them as I could uh, in Montreal, a little bit in Toronto, a little bit in New York. Um, and then eventually I ended up in a company called Groupe Nouvelle which was run by Martin Epoch, and that's when mm, the connection to choreography began. That company seems like it was a real hotbed in it those was. times in Montreal, because many artists who came out of there around the same time yeah. as you started forming companies, or at least groups that then became companies, yeah, in the early 80s? Yeah. So her influence was very widespread, would you say? Well, she, it, was not a, um, it was not a hierarchical company. Um, people could access, uh, young, young apprentices could access um, mm, dancers from the company. There was a lot of crosstalk. <clears throat> a lot of people were conversing about various things. So it wasn't uh, one of those companies where groups sort of stood apart from each other. And so that led to all sorts of experimentations that normally wouldn't have been possible in the context of a normal company. Mm -hmm. I think very early on, um, if if it's fair to say, you became known as somebody who was taking a lot of risk, but with the body, as well as your use of props, you were... Uh, it wasn't so much risking with the body. That's, I think, a misconception, uh, because had we taken risks with the body, we wouldn't have been able to assure the kind of long tours that we were doing with no doubles and a, a small cast. I think what we were doing was taking risks with a political body. Uh, not the physical body. Uh, the idea that Louisa Cavalier, for instance, would take a stance uh, that implied that uh, there was an equal strength and an equal power uh, uh, available to the woman uh, was a political statement more than a physical statement. Because uh, obviously when you're doing, let's say, a pas de deux uh, construction or structure, it's all about cooperation. No man can lift a woman that doesn't want to be lifted, and no woman obviously can lift a man that doesn't want to be lifted. So it was all about the illusion of the pedido, but the illusion was being transferred in various different ways, and that created a bit of a shock. But it wasn't built around any kind of violence, and it wasn't built around any kind of um, destructive attitude physically. Yeah, I guess I mean risk also in the way... I, I, I think that that's, that's really important to be reminded of what you've just said, and I think that that is really true. These These dancers withstood that work for a very long period of time and over long terms uh, over long tours i guess i mean risk also in the way that we were seeing the body in a way that we weren't used to seeing the body not just the female male but also just everything i mean bodies walking on milk bottles and and bodies uh, being clothed in androgynous costumes that allowed us to i mean i'm thinking of images that i might remember from businessman and some of the really early pieces where you were making lots of different statements about taking the content and the theme also a lot farther than we had seen contemporary dance at that time i think you were ahead of your time in many ways and if i look at canada what else was going on in the country? Well, I, I think that there's an inherent mystery to the body and there's an inherent mystery to what nature we have. I think it's socially defined for us, so we don't really put it into perspective or we don't question it very often, but theater is there to question. And so um, the idea of having an elusive um, identity was interesting, uh, both in terms of the choreography but also in terms of the more theatrical aspects of productions. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you're talking about milk bottles. <laughs> I'm not walked on those milk bottles. There's, uh, it was an allegory. I mean, 
part of being on stage is the fragility of it. You're, you're, you're fragile. You're taking a, a, a risk that isn't just physical, but also an ego risk. Uh, you're in a situation where you invite failure. Uh, and if you don't invite it, it'll come in unannounced. So there is a theatrical uh, place for failure. I think in a society that tries to generate um, as much avoidance as possible uh, about failure, I think theater should in fact uh, accept it, invite it. Uh, it creates a situation where, um, how should I put it, the, the audience which has come in to see the produ production has failed on that day, on that week, on that month. Uh, has created situations or have lived through situations which are not, you know, going to end well. And um, to have the stage immune from that in a way is to exclude the audience and their reality from it. So, uh, you know, walking on, on milk bottles was an allegory for that, for the fragility and also for the past. The, you know, I've always sensed that the idea of some, presenting something that is absolutely in the present is impossible. It's a very naive idea. You have to have references to the past. And um, you, can't pr you can't create something in the absolute present. Um, though, when I first began, it was sort of seen as a possibility for contemporary dance to do so, to essentially create a point of view that did not refer to anything in the past, which I was very naive, because if you tried to, to do that in music or painting or literature, you'd be laughed at. The idea that you've come with, an, with, a piece of, with a vision that is so absolutely original that it does not in any way, shape, or form in, um, relate to anything any other artist has done is, is well, <laughs> is not possible, frankly. So, but dance at that beginning was a little bit thinking that. And again, those sort of allegories to the past, allegories to fragility, those were things that I'd, I think instinctively was attracted to. What, did you, what do you remember about creating Oranges and, and Businessmen, much like I was asking you about Lily uh, I remember in Oranges being... Um, so we, used to, we used to set up Oranges because there were four huge, seamless um, papers that had to be sort of um, spread out and tacked on top of one another. And it was a pro process that took about two and a half hours to three hours each day prior to the show. And... We didn't have that many technicians, so we'd be doing that before we actually started to warm up and do the show. And I remember being at the performing garage in New York and some guy running in, grabbing Louise's purse and running out and everybody running after him. And of course, as soon as we left the theater, the door shut. <laughs> and we had about two hours work setting up Seamless for that night's show. We couldn't get back in. And it was a Sunday, <laughs> and we were trying to, to reach the owner or the programmer of the theater who happened to have a life, and so it was not available on a Sunday. <laughs> so those are odd memories that were sort of fun, well, fun now to think of. But Was that your, the, the first piece that really toured? No, actually, Lily Mar well, Lily Marlene toured, but uh, for a week. Okay. It was a month's run, three York, weeks right. in Montreal, right. one, mo one month in New York. Right. And gradually from that base, it started to expand, a little bit in Canada. It went to Vancouver and for Oranges. I'm not exactly sure, Toronto, certainly. Um, I think Quebec City, I'm not sure. And uh, went back to New York and started to venture out slightly towards uh, Europe. And then... Uh, and Paris and... Pardon me? Paris and other cities. But that's a big deal. I it mean, was a big deal. When yeah. you say Paris, I mean, we're talking about 1980, Absolutely. 81. Do you remember where you played in Paris? 82, I think, something like that. It was at, I think the first time I went to Paris was at the, um, I don't remember anymore, the American Center, I okay. think it was. Okay. 
I remember seeing oranges at Simon Fraser University. Is that possible? Do I, do I have that memory correct? Were you at a fruit stand? No, okay. I was not. No. All right. Those were different kinds of oranges. Mm. You brought the company there, and I went to see That's it. That's possible. In the theater there, because there used to be quite a big series of, uh, actually, that was probably the place to go. We had to go all the way up that mountain to, sure. to see contemporary dance in Vancouver. And I wasn't living in Montreal at the time, so... And then came Businessman, and that seems to have been also something very significant. Well, each piece was significant to us when we did it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of when, at what, at what point back then you said, oh my God, I've got a company. I mean, I know you changed the name to La 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 Human Steps. I know you sort of... I think it was always there without actually being sort of thought about too deal. much. Well, you, I don't know. I mean, you know, a performance, when you spend time creating the performance and you spend time presenting the performance, that sort of encompasses pretty much all of your activities. And so you can tell that there wasn't that much forethought in terms of the future. For instance, there was almost no archiving of any kind. Now, a lot of these pieces were seen, 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 and they, were, they disappeared. There was no um, attempt to try to archive them for any future reference. But I remember at the same time uh, uh, being presenting uh, uh, Businessman three weeks at the Spectrum uh, in Montreal, and that was a big deal because that was a three-week run. Yeah. That was a long time, and the theater was a respected, large theater, and I remember, you know, uh, having a chance to have a dialogue with an audience that would come back night after night, and, and that was a different kind of... Um, How long were you taking in those days to actually make a piece? Oh, about six months, generally. About six months. Yeah. It's sort of the same as it would take now? Yeah, I mean, when later. I go into a ballet company, I've got six weeks. That seems extraordinarily short, doesn't it? Uh, no. no. No, I think the difference is um, that the dancer in a, in a longer period of time has the option of personalizing his technique so that you it seems almost to come out of them spontaneously, whereas... Uh, in ballet companies, obviously they're very good dancers, so they can take on various demands by different choreographers easily, but it doesn't quite fit as tightly as uh, somebody that has access to the material for a longer period of time. Right. You were also dancing back in those early pieces. Yes, I was. Did you dance through t- to New Demons? Was that the last piece you danced in, if I remember correctly? No, correct? I think I went on stage for um, Infante. Infante. And why did you, what did you feel about that, being a dancer in the pieces, and why did you stop doing that? Because I was thinking about everybody else except myself, so, you know. You, you became like a, um, a, a fascinating cameo in, in some of the later pieces. Like they, we sort of waited for that moment when you would come and, and you, your particular movement was very signature based and you know, the, there was mm. this flash of Edward and, and it felt like sometimes that you were there and then you were gone. Yeah, and no, I remember in, when we toured Australia in 1987, the trip being so long that quite a few people fell ill when they arrived in Sydney. I was one of them, and my back let, just went out, so I, I couldn't even walk. And I, that was when I first began to think maybe I shouldn't be doing this solo thing, because I had so much else to do. You have to check the lights, you have to rehearse people, you have to make sure everything's in, in place, so that wasn't necessarily any more priority for me. And you also seem to have, I mean, I've been on, the, on tour with your company at various points, and uh, there's, there also seems to be this great challenge of making your 
the vision of that piece makes sense in whatever context you walk into. And as much as you can see the technical plans of a theatre on a piece of paper, sometimes you don't really know until you're there what it's going to look and feel like. You don't know what that is, and you don't know what the audience will bring to it. The idea that the audience is essentially a passive element in a theatre presentation is wrong. They have an influence, and I think... in France, there's a word for isolating pockets or moments or places within a dark audience and saying, well, this part of the audience has that sort of attitude or that sort of feel. Um, the dialogue, one of the things that theater kind of um, brings to the table is the idea that a dialogue can happen wordlessly between two groups of strangers that have no idea of who they are and no previous um, introduction. Uh, and it's surprising how the audience in some ways sort of like a wind that kind of erodes the piece. It sort of creates moments where the artists on stage feel particularly attentive or where they feel observed or where there's a reaction um, that eventually kind of creates a situation where they use that sort of wind to... Um, get their bearings to maybe get rid of the excess or what isn't necessary. So there's a, there's a gradual leaning, in a way, of the piece um, in relationship to all the various audiences that have their impact on the dance over the course of the tour. But you don't know that necessarily when you walk into Glasgow <coughs> and perform in this theater for the first time. You well, don't you know, know there's going to be a reaction. Like. Pardon me? You know there's going to be a reaction. Mm-hmm. But you don't know that particular audience until you're there. It's not something no, you can plan I for. I have to say, though, that what's strange, in a way, over the years, is how similar uh, culturally audiences have been, regardless of whether they're in Asia or Europe or North America or South America. They seem to react more hom- in a more homogenous way than one would think, given the cultural differences. Um, I think because work is visual. And... Oddly enough, the eye is much more accommodating to different influences in the ears. If you listen to music from different cultures, you can appreciate it, but it's hard to emotionally get involved in it, whereas painting and you know, dance and various other visual arts seem to travel more easily intraculturally. So um, you can't tell what a Glasgow audience will be like, but you can probably closely anticipate the reactions based on a Polish audience, oddly enough. You mentioned um, Louise Le Cavalier before, who of course became quite... Did a, I? Yes, Did I mention Louise? Did. Ah. Who of course became quite a signature uh, part of your work, uh, pretty much from businessman through yep. to two, I guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's seven two, or eight two, works. To uh, more than two, to uh, Salt. She was still in the company right. at Salt. That's right. Um, so, so tell me about that. How does that... I mean, obviously, she became, a, a, as I say, a signature dancer, very much um, part of um, a, a physical aesthetic that we associate with you and with, and with your company. Um, how, did that, how did that evolve for the two of you, and how does that change from one piece to the next? Uh, I asked her once... When I saw her in a crowd, if she'd like to be in a piece that I did, she said yes. That really was how it started. And she's a very hard worker, and she doesn't like to um, repeat herself. Um, And 
it just felt like there was a natural fit between two people that liked ideas a lot. She liked ideas, she'd get passionate about them, I would too, and she would then, you know, make that idea become, or incarnate that idea. In those days, it, it didn't feel that we were uh, stepping into the studio and becoming, uh, okay, coming in for work, and then leaving and, and going back to our regular lives. It felt like we were living this thing 24 hours a day. Um, in the studio, outside the studio, it didn't matter. Uh, we were who we were on stage almost constantly. And um, <coughs> uh, she'd, she'd also, you know, rehearse tremendous amounts. Uh, she'd actually run through the piece on the day of a performance. She'd run through the piece and then get ready to do the piece. So there was a, you know, this, this sort of uh, gigantic uh, person inside that body. She had this this hugeness inside of her that really needed an outlet. She needed to express it, to in some way connect with a large group of people. It was really part of her nature, and it really was essential to her physical and emotional health. And it was, um, I guess, necessary to make something happen, to have those kinds of extreme passions about what we were doing. Would you say she was your muse? <coughs> Oh yeah, she was definitely. Mm -hmm. And the 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 ability to push your technique, if I can call it that, although it seems like way more than technique in the traditional sense of the word, the ability to push your technique. I mean, is that part of having that kind of dancer, that that kind of artist around, who's able to go that far? In I other think words, did she push you as much as you push her in some simple way? Well, I think all dancers or all artists shouldn't be. Um, shouldn't attach themselves too much to what they know they can do well, which is counterintuitive because when you step on a stage, you don't want to take a risk. You don't. You want to create a situation where you're presented in the best possible way with material that you feel is going to represent your technical gifts the best way possible. But of course, if you do that, it leaves the audience essentially cold, um, uninterested. There's there's something, you're essentially creating charismatic theater. You're creating a situation where you want to be admired by a group of people that don't have the skills that you have, and that is essentially the message. We wanted to create a situation where there's empathetic theater, where the person that was on stage was essentially having to solve problems that could potentially end up not uh, being solved. And this was much more similar to what the audience was living in their day-to-day -day lives than charismatic theater. And so the idea that you use technique as a way to take the risk and not as a way to hide the risk was uh, a fundamental decision. And I think to this day, the one thing that I feel very attracted to are people that do that that are not hiding behind their abilities, but use their abilities to thrust outwards into a situation where they can be more relevant to an audience. It's a pretty big, it's a pretty tall order. Must be hard to find performers who really can go there. It's a, it's a place almost to I don't even understand what a performer would do if they didn't go there. What would they, what would they be performing? <laughs> I guess work that was given to them within the boundaries that they were comfortable with. Yeah, well, comfort and theater really don't go well together. I don't... I, I, I'm thrilled to hear you say that. I'm, I'm <laughs> suggesting don't. that there's probably a lot of theater that doesn't, that doesn't go down that path. Yeah.
That's all for this edition of NEC Dance Podcast. Join us next time for part two of the conversation with Edward Locke. Please send us your comments and questions. You can email us at nacpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcast.ca. There you will find past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Until next time, this is Alary Evans saying goodbye from Canada's NAC Dance. Yeah.